The Four Gospels from a Lawyer's Standpoint by Edmund Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It is, as you know, a part of the lawyer's profession to examine and cross-examine witnesses to detect their errors and expose their falsehoods, or, on the other hand, to reconcile their conflicting statements and, from seeming discord, to evolve and make manifest the real truth. And this paper is the result of an effort on my own part to ascertain whether or not, independently of divine revelation, independently of the exercise of a devout Christian faith, independently of any appeal to our religious sentiments the truth of the story told in the four gospels could be satisfactorily established by a mere reasoning process and by applying the same principles and the same tests to the gospel narratives that we observe in determining the truth or falsity of any other documents or any other historical accounts while we claim no special favours in our investigations because of any alleged importance of the subject it is only fair to expect that every one will come to this examination with an unbiased and unprejudiced mind ready and willing to accept the same evidence of truth and honesty as in other inquiries moreover since we decide many important worldly matters upon the mere preponderance of evidence and arguments why should we not adopt the same principles here it is not necessary in order to recommend the gospel story for our adoption to insist that it be proved to a mathematical demonstration and beyond the cavils of every doubter or of every unreasonable sceptic why not adopt that conclusion which has the higher degree of probability rather than the opposite if we choose neither we practically reject both in secular matters if seventy-five per cent of everything that can be said on both sides of any subject leads to one result we are generally ready to adopt that conclusion in preference to the other it is you know not uncommon before deciding some important worldly matter to arrange the argument pro and con in parallel columns and thus be guided by their comparative weight to our final conclusion let us do so here i approach this subject therefore with a personal reminiscence a few years ago while writing an historical address for one of our massachusetts cities i came across in a newspaper file of the revolutionary period a letter or what purported to be a letter written from that place giving an account of a meeting held there in seventeen seventy four and a copy of some patriotic resolutions passed thereat the writer of that letter if there ever was one had long been dead all the persons said to have taken part in that meeting were also gone the printer and publisher who gave the account to the world had likewise vanished from the earth there was no person living who could make oath or testify that such an occurrence ever actually took place but yet i had no hesitation in adopting the account as genuine and using it as an established event in the history of that town the mere fact of the existence of such a document under such circumstances was prima facie proof of its genuineness and authenticity quite sufficient to justify the acceptance of it as true until the contrary be proved what would have been my joy and confidence had i found four such letters in four different papers written by four different persons giving an account of the same transaction and although in a close comparison of these four accounts some variations should have been found as to the particulars of that event would that overthrow all belief in the truthfulness of the accounts nay would it not rather furnish stronger proof of their integrity had all four accounts been exactly alike the suspicion would have been irresistible that one was copied from the other or that all were taken from one and the same original 
but substantial uniformity with circumstantial variety is one of the surest tests of truth in all historical narratives. The several accounts of many important battles of the world and of many other historical events vary in many particulars, and yet no one thereby has any doubt of their occurrence. The four portraits of the father of his country, painted by four different artists, viz. Stuart, Peel, Sharpless, and Wright, though all taken about the same period of his life, vary so much in expression that you would scarcely know them to represent the same person, and yet the same George Washington undoubtedly sat for them all. The various editions of Gray's Elegy and some of Shakespeare's plays differ as much as do some chapters of Matthew and Luke in their respective accounts of the same transaction. Indeed, what four of us could go away from this meeting and give exactly the same account of what transpires here? What four witnesses under oath in a court of justice ever describe a transaction precisely alike, and yet their testimony is taken as reliable, in cases involving the most important interests, even of life and death? Indeed, judges and juries are apt to discredit a cause in which all the witnesses tell a long story in exactly the same words. Let us apply the same principles to the subject matter of this address. The four Gospels exist. They purport to contain the history of our Lord Jesus Christ. The authors are not living. The characters they therein describe are no more. No man living knows by direct personal knowledge that these things were ever so. But why not apply the same rules of evidence and belief to scriptural narratives as to any other? Being in existence and a minute account of passing events, they must be either genuine and true or else a gross forgery. There is no alternative, for the self-delusion theory is preposterous. They were true when written, or were then an absolute falsehood. If the latter, they must at that very time have been known to be false, and an imposition on the credulity of those then living. These stories began to be published not long after the alleged crucifixion. Many persons were then living who could have easily refuted the statements of the evangelists, had they been untrue. The enemies of Jesus were still alive and active, the scribe and the Pharisee, the priest and the Levite, still smarted under his repeated denunciations. They had the disposition, the opportunity, and the incentive to deny the story of the miraculous birth, the spotless life, the marvellous works, the sublime death, the astounding resurrection, and the glorious ascension of our Lord, had the then-published description of these events been totally fabulous. But, so far as we know, no person then living ever uttered a protest against these accounts, and for two thousand years they have been received and treated as veritable history. Again, being written, they must have been written by someone. There they are, some persons wrote them, and they must have been written by either bad men or good men, by liars or by truth-tellers, by forgers or by honest historians. That is a very elementary and simple proposition, but it is the key to the whole situation, one which I ask you to steadily carry with you throughout this investigation. Remember that every circumstance tending to disprove forgery tends, on the other hand, to prove truth, for they must be one or the other. The question, then, is, do wicked men write such books as these? Do liars proclaim that they, and all other liars, shall have their part in the lake that burneth with fire and brimstone? Does the thief denounce dishonesty, or the adulterer proclaim uncleanness, or Satan rebuke sin? If, then, these stories were not penned by wicked men, they must owe their origin to honest men, and if honest and truthful men wrote them, they must be honest and true narratives, and not a tissue of falsehoods. Is not the conclusion irresistible? Need we go farther? But let us look at the subject from four other standpoints. 1. 
peculiarities of each gospel. Aside from the general considerations above alluded to, each gospel itself contains internal and indirect but cogent evidence of its own genuineness. I purposely omit all reference to the manifold external proofs of the authenticity of the Gospels, the number and force of which increase with every new discovery, and I confine myself wholly to inherent and intrinsic evidence thereof. Some of these illustrations I am about to give may be found elsewhere, and I lay no claim to originality, for nothing new or original can now be written on this subject. To present some old truths in a new setting is all I can reasonably expect to accomplish." let us look at each gospel separately and see how its naturalness its conformity to what we should expect its harmony with its surroundings tends to prove its truth st matthew take first the gospel of st matthew he and he alone records the circumstance of jesus paying tribute to the tax collector of capernaum chapter seventeen verses twenty four to twenty seven how do we account for this why should matthew be more likely to mention this particular fact than any other evangelist when we remember that he was himself a tax-gatherer and therefore especially interested in and observant of anything relating to his own profession the answer is obvious so again matthew informs us chapter twenty seven verse sixty six that after jesus's burial the jews went and made the sepulchre sure sealing the stone and setting a watch how does it happen that matthew alone mentions that fact we must remember that the people of judea as had been justly remarked were oppressively taxed under the roman dominion and that excessive taxation often leads to evasion cunning and fraud by the taxpayer and to increased vigilance caution and close scrutiny on the part of the collector accustomed therefore to suspect fraud and evasion matthew would naturally be the most likely to notice and record a fact which tended to show that in so important event deception had been carefully guarded against would a man forging the four gospels remember that he must make matthew state these facts and carefully make all the other historians omit them naming the apostles again in giving the names of the twelve apostles a natural incident occurs which i regard as one of the strongest proofs of simplicity and truth in matthew the apostles are usually named in couples thus simon and andrew james and john etc one couple is described by both mark and luke as matthew and thomas matthew's name being first in both stories but matthew himself chapter ten verse three with the modesty of an honest and true man says thomas and matthew putting thomas first and himself last is not this so natural as to be a sign of truth but some sceptic may say this is only accidental that don't prove much anyway read a little further and see matthew's occupation was then as now an unpopular and odious one and the other evangelists therefore when speaking of matthew make no reference to it but matthew himself with true humility says matthew the publican another instance of this same quality is found in the several accounts of matthew's farewell feast to his former associates when he forsook all and followed jesus luke chapter five verse twenty nine says matthew made a great feast in his own house and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them mark chapter two verse fifteen agrees in this complimentary description of this event but matthew himself modestly omits all reference to himself and the magnitude of the feast and simply says and it came to pass that jesus sat at meat in the house etc chapter nine verse ten without even saying it was his own house much less that he had invited a large company to his banquet is this forgery if not it is honest truth falsehood is pretentious brazen-faced crooked 
truth is modest natural artless straws are they do not straws indicate the true course of the wind st mark let us turn to st mark's gospel here we constantly find explanation of jewish terms and phrases which are not found in the corresponding verses of matthew about the same event thus in chapter seven verse two mark writes when they saw his disciples eat bread with defiled hands they found fault and then the writer adds this explanation for the pharisees and all the jews except they wash their hands oft eat not and again in verse eleven if a man shall say to his father or mother it is corban mark adds that is to say a gift in chapter two verse twenty six speaking of david eating the showbread in the days of abiathar he explains again which is not lawful to eat but for the priests in chapter five verse forty one when he records that jesus said to the maid talitha kumi he adds which is being interpreted damsel i say unto thee arise again mark writes chapter seven verse thirty four ephatha and adds that is be opened why is mark so careful to explain all these jewish terms and phrases when matthew is not if we remember that matthew himself a jew was writing for jews who understood such terms already and mark himself a gentile was addressing gentiles who did not we have the answer what a skilful forger must he have been to have contrived all that st luke luke also has many indirect proofs of naturalness for instance luke traces the genealogy of jesus upwards to adam as the gentiles did because he was writing for gentiles while matthew writing for jews as we have said reckons downwards from abraham as the jews always did still more in st luke's descriptions of miraculous cures the natural and genuine character of his gospel clearly appears thus while the others simply speak of christ as healing a leper and of curing a man who had a withered hand luke says the first was full of leprosy and it was the right hand of the last which was withered again the others say peter's wife's mother lay sick of a fever but luke writes that she was taken with a great fever in the account of the healing of the centurion's servant matthew simply says the servant was sick of the palsy but luke with more fullness records that he was sick and ready to die so in the healing of the daughter of jairus matthew merely states that her father addressed our saviour thus my daughter is even now dead but come and lay thy hand upon her and she shall live and jesus took her by the hand and the maid arose but luke with more minuteness and tenderness of feeling tells us that jairus fell down at jesus's feet and besought him that he would come into his house for he had only one daughter about twelve years of age and she lay a-dying and jesus took her by the hand and called saying maid arise and her spirit came again and she arose straight away and again while three evangelists mention that peter cut off the ear of malchus the servant of the high priest they all stop there but luke alone with his more acute observation adds and jesus touched his ear and healed him so also luke alone mentions the compassion of the good samaritan he alone records the fact that the sleep of the disciples in the garden of gethsemane was induced by extreme sorrow that jesus sweat great drops of blood etc now why this more accurate observation and description by luke of every circumstance of disease and of mental and physical suffering than can be found in any other historian of the same events what was there in luke's history or life which qualified and induced him thus to note and describe all kinds of diseases so much more minutely than the others turn to colossians chapter four verse fourteen 
do you have the answer where paul writing to the colossians closes his letter thus luke the beloved physician and demas greet you did the forger of luke's gospel conspire with the forger of paul's epistle the one to put into luke's mouth words which a physician would naturally utter but without intimating that he was a physician and the other to simply call him a physician without giving any circumstances indicating it forgers do not rest content with such roundabout confirmations on the other hand truth-tellers do not trouble themselves to make these stories corroborate each other but these are either forgeries or true tales so much for luke st john's gospel also contains internal proof of honesty and genuineness thus in chapter six verse sixty six soon after the miracle of the loaves and fishes we read that from that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him and again in chapter seven verse five that neither did his brethren believe on him what an admission for a writer to make if he were concocting a stupendous fraud to impose upon the community viz to openly proclaim to the world that the impostor whose pretensions he was undertaking to bolster up could not retain the confidence of those who were in daily personal contact with him and this from a man who was not his enemy but his first chosen disciple and his most devoted admirer candor might lead a truthful historian to make such an admission but nothing would induce a fraudulent one to do so but still another striking characteristic of genuineness is found in john's gospel he omits all reference to many events which the other evangelists record in full thus he makes no allusion to the temptation of jesus by the devil to the first miraculous draught of fishes to the healing of peter's wife's mother or the recovery of the leper to the cure of the paralytic or of the withered hand or of the two demoniacs to the parable of the sower to the stilling of the tempest or the feast of levi to our lord to the prophecy of the destruction of the temple or the parable of the fig tree to the transfiguration on the mount or to many other important events to which of some he was even an eye-witness why is this notable omission by john of so many scenes with which he was perfectly familiar and which the other three evangelists record so fully if it be the fact that john's gospel was written long after the other three had been published in the world as is generally believed does not that naturally suggest that he probably thought it unnecessary to repeat what they had already described so minutely on the other hand john alone mentions many interesting and touching incidents in our saviour's life about which all the others are entirely silent thus he alone narrates the story of john the baptist at the time the jews sent the priests and levites to interrogate him he alone describes the calling of andrew and simon philip and nathaniel he alone records the marriage in cana of galilee the driving of the money changers from the temple the visit of nicodemus by night the meeting with the samaritan woman at jacob's well the healing of the nobleman's son the scene at the pool of bethesda the parable of the good shepherd the restoring of sight to the blind in the pool of siloam the raising of lazarus etc in john alone do we read that sweetly tender address of jesus to his disciples which has since soothed many a sorrowing breast let not your heart be troubled in my father's house are many mansions chapter fourteen verse one why does john record so many touching and tender events in our lord's life of which others make no mention do we not find the explanation in the fact that he was the disciple whom jesus pre-eminently loved 
that he enjoyed in a special degree his master's regard and confidence resting his head so often on his master's bosom that his mother was one of those who constantly followed jesus and ministered unto him that of the four evangelists he alone was present at the transfiguration on the mount and at the agony in gethsemane that he alone followed jesus to the cross and was present at so many other affecting scenes to which the rest were not admitted could we have more satisfactory evidence of probability and truthfulness than these several peculiarities in the four evangelists indicate what a consummate forger must he have been who could know and constantly remember all these particulars and never make a slip in his fabrications the forger of the letters falsely attributed to mary queen of scots or of the famous parnellite letters some years ago could not compare in ingenuity with a possible forger of the four evangelists may we not believe therefore that each gospel by its own internal peculiarities bears testimony to its truth and reality two confirmations in the gospels by comparing the various gospels with each other we often find confirmations of their truth and veracity a notable instance exists in regard to herod's servants in matthew chapter fourteen verses one and two and luke chapter nine verse nine we read that when herod the tetrarch heard of the fame of jesus being perplexed thereat he said unto his servants inquiringly this is john the baptist he is risen from the dead john have i beheaded but who is this of whom i hear such things the inquiry at once arises why did herod address this question to his servants what could they be supposed to know or care about jesus or about john the baptist matthew gives no reason why but on turning to luke chapter eight verse three we learn that one of the followers of jesus was joanna the wife of herod's steward and in acts chapter thirteen verse one we are told that in the church at antioch there was a teacher named manaean who had been brought up with herod the tetrarch no doubt therefore herod supposed that the higher grade of his servants could give him some information about jesus which he wanted to know and it was not strange therefore that he should address them as he did the transfiguration on the mount again after the transfiguration on the mount luke says chapter nine verse thirty six that they who had witnessed this remarkable event kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen but he gives no reason for this extraordinary silence on a subject so full of interest and wonder and which the witnesses thereto would naturally be inclined to spread abroad but turn to mark and you will find the explanation chapter nine verse nine where he records that as they came down from the mountain jesus charged them they should tell no man what things they had seen etc one narrates the command but not the obedience the other the obedience but not the command is that a contrived variation or is it the natural and accidental difference into which honest witnesses constantly fall the passover once more when mark tells us chapter six verse thirty one that after the death of john the baptist jesus said unto his disciples come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest awhile the writer adds for there were many coming and going without giving any intimation of the reason why so many should be abroad at that particular time but on turning to john chapter six verse four the missing link appears for we learn that the passover was nigh at hand and thus the cause of the travelling multitude is obvious viz they were all going up to jerusalem to the feast the samaritan's disregard of jesus still again in luke 
chapter 9, verse 51 and 53, we are told that Jesus, on one of his journeys to Jerusalem, sent messengers before him to a village of the Samaritans to make ready for his coming. But the Samaritans would not receive him, because, to use the scripture language, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Why should that be a reason for not receiving him? What difference could it make to them whether he was going to Jerusalem or to some other city? Luke does not tell us why, nor does he give us the slightest clue on the subject, but we learn it elsewhere. It is this, the Samaritans did not believe in Jerusalem as a place of worship. They had set up a temple in Gerizim, in opposition to the holy city. As Jesus was known to be on his way to Jerusalem to worship there, it was only poor human nature that the Samaritans did not feel like paying him any particular attention when on such a journey. The Denial by Peter in the denial by Peter, a notable indirect confirmation or proof of veracity occurs. Thus, three of the evangelists say that when Peter was warming himself in the palace of the high priest, a maid saw him and charged him with being a disciple of Jesus, but neither of the three intimate how she knew it to be so. How should a maidservant in the family of the high priest, the most exalted officer in the Jewish synagogue, know such a fact? proud of her position in the first family in town, wearing the brightest and gayest dress of all her set, what should that dark-haired and dark-eyed Jewish maiden know or care about the lowly and despised Nazarene, much less as to who his deluded followers were? Turn to John, chapter 18, verse 17, and the mystery is solved. There we learn that the maid who thus addressed Peter was the very one who kept the door of the palace through which Peter had just entered but how did that enable her to know that peter was a follower of jesus read john again chapter eighteen verses fifteen and sixteen and we find out that john first went into the palace with jesus leaving peter standing outside and then john came out and as he was going out spake to her that kept the door and brought in peter right past her she saw john come in with jesus and then go out and bring in peter and remembering what he had said to her going out she was not a very bright girl, unless she could put this and that together, and guess pretty well what was going on. And this incident furnishes another corroboration of one evangelist by the others. John speaks of only one maid who thus addressed Peter. Others say there were two, while Luke says it was a man. But John himself further on indirectly confirms the other three, because he says in verse 25 that, As Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, they said therefore unto him, Art not thou one of his disciples? Smiting of Jesus Again, in the last tragic scene of our Saviour's life, Matthew tells us, chapter 26, verse 67 and 68, that his murderers, after spitting in his face and smiting him with the palms of their hands, challenged him to say who smote him, as if that were an impossible question for him to answer. How could such a question be difficult? Could he not see who struck him, and in the face too? Matthew gives no fact throwing light upon it, and none is there apparent. You could not understand it from Matthew alone, but turn to Luke, and the reason for such a question is obvious, for Luke says, chapter 22, verse 64, When they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face, and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? Thus we see the force and significance of the question addressed to a blindfolded man, which to another would have been too simple. The Bearer of the Cross Matthew and Luke say that at the crucifixion of Jesus his cross was borne by one Simon, a Cyrenian, but they give no other particulars about him. Mark alone adds that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why? Mark wrote his gospel at Rome for Romans. 
But what had that to do with it? Turn to Romans 16.13, and we find that Rufus was a disciple of Jesus and lived in Rome. How natural, therefore, that Mark, when writing to Romans, should specially refer to Rufus, who was then living among them, and whose father had been so closely connected with the awful tragedy of the crucifixion. And how natural that, first the pity and then the love of Rufus, should have been excited for Jesus by the fact that his father had borne the cross, and was an eyewitness to the awful sufferings thereon, the account of which, no doubt, he had often heard from his father's lips. Division of the Garments one more instance of confirmation remains. The division of the garments of Jesus after the crucifixion furnishes a remarkable instance of the truth of the gospel narrative as confirmed by other sources. John informs us, chapter 19, verse 23, that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. How is this? Why just four parts? Were there no more soldiers there on such an extraordinary occasion as that? Yes, they had the whole band, Matthew chapter 27 verse 27, Mark chapter 15 verse 16, and a centurion's band is a hundred. Why were only four entitled to his garments? This is the explanation. Crucifixion as a mode of punishment was well known to many ancient nations. The common and familiar practice was to compel the person to bear his cross to the place of crucifixion, and to lay the cross upon the ground, one end slightly raised. Then the victim was laid upon it, with his arms and limbs extended, and four of the most brutal soldiers were selected to drive four large nails or spikes through the quivering flesh of his hands and feet, for which repulsive service they were entitled by custom to his clothes as a special perquisite. So John told the truth, four parts, to every soldier apart. So much for confirmations by comparison. 3. Variations in the Gospels Some well-disposed persons, for the most part of the rather feeble-minded sort, are much troubled at the variations in the Gospel stories about the same event, and find many stumbling-blocks in their way. Let us look at some of the events recorded in different words by the various evangelists, and we shall realize what is meant by the phrase harmony of the Gospels, and that mere variations are not contradictions, but, on the other hand, often real confirmations of each other. Take, for example, the imprisonment of John Baptist by Herod. Matthew tells us, chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, that Herod had laid hold on John and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had told Herod that it was not lawful for him to have her. But Matthew nowhere intimates that they were already married. Mark alone, chapter 6, verse 17, informs us that the marriage had actually taken place. Luke adds yet another reason for John's imprisonment, viz. because he had reproved Herod, not only for the Herodias matter, but also for all the evils which Herod had done. Chapter 3, verse 19. But there is no conflict or inconsistency in these different accounts. Every word of every one may well be true. Healing the leper. So in the healing of the leper, Matthew says, chapter 8, verse 2, Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Mark adds something different. Chapter 1, verse 40, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, etc. This additional fact of kneeling Matthew does not record. Luke, chapter 5, verse 12, mentions still another feature, viz. the leper fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, etc. These variations are only successive strokes on one and the same picture. The inscription on the cross. 
the inscription on the cross furnishes one more and one of the best illustrations of unity in variety to be found in the new testament mark chapter fifteen verse twenty six says it read the king of the jews luke chapter twenty three verse thirty eight this is the king of the jews matthew chapter twenty seven verse thirty seven this is jesus the king of the jews john chapter nineteen verse nineteen jesus of nazareth the king of the jews was there no cross on calvary because of these variations written as they were in hebrew greek and latin luke chapter twenty three verse thirty eight is the story of barabbas a myth merely because one evangelist john says he was a robber and two others mark and luke call him a murderer was there no king of tyre because in some places his name is spelt hiram and in others huram is there no true time of day because all the clocks in your house strike at a different moment these many variations lead to another suggestion if these are forged tales they were doubtless written by the same person or by four different persons how improbable that the same person should take the unnecessary trouble to make up four false stories about jesus in order to impose on the world and at the same time make them so different from each other as to excite doubts in some honest and well-disposed minds even to this day as to the truth of any one of them on the other hand how vastly more improbable that four different persons at different times and in different places should deliberately sit down without any apparent motive to write four similar fictitious stories without any knowledge of each other's work or if they had such knowledge that they did not make their stories agree better with each other it is too absurd to be worthy of even denying here again we may learn from secular matters that the actual occurrence of some event is not to be doubted because of some discrepancy or even some contradiction in details between the different narrators thereof for instance some historians assert that lord stafford was condemned to be hanged for his alleged participation in the popish plot in sixteen eighty while burnet and other historians narrate that he was beheaded but that he suffered death for the charge though probably unjustly no one doubts so in our own times there has been for more than a century a controversy as to the person who made the public proclamation of the declaration of independence from the balcony of the old state house in boston on the morning of july eighteenth seventeen seventy six many accounts assert that this proclamation was made by william greenleaf the high sheriff of suffolk county while as many more declare that it was by colonel thomas crafts but recent researches disclose the fact that mr greenleaf having a weak voice first read the declaration sentence by sentence to colonel crafts who stood by his side and then the latter in his loud and sonorous tones repeated the same to the assembled multitude below and thus the seeming conflict is easily and naturally reconciled four inconsistencies in the gospels let us now look at some of the alleged inconsistencies in the gospel stories in reconciling differences let not the children of this world be wiser than the children of light the healing of the two demoniacs mark chapter five verse two and luke chapter eight verse twenty seven say that a man with an unclean spirit coming out of the tombs besought jesus to cure him but does it follow that matthew was false because he says chapter eight verse twenty eight two men met him if there were two there certainly was one and if there was one it does not prove that there were not two but as has been well said there is an obvious reason why mark and luke mention only one what is it there was only one who showed any gratitude for his deliverance and his case therefore impressed itself the more on their minds since the duty of gratitude for blessings received was the special lesson they were seeking to inculcate and this expulsion of the devils and sending them into a herd of swine suggests another proof of reality and indirect confirmation 
There was, says the evangelists, nigh to the city of Gadara, a herd of swine feeding. How could that be? The Jews were forbidden to eat swine's flesh. It was such an abomination to the Jews that one of them declared that he would die rather than eat it. How happened it that such animals were being raised about the city of Gadara, and great herds of them too? Turn to Josephus, and we read that Gadara was a Grecian, not a Jewish city, and the Greeks had no aversion to swine's flesh. The alabaster box of ointment. Again, because Matthew and Mark say that the woman with an alabaster box of ointment poured it on the head of Jesus, was John a falsifier when he says she anointed his feet and wiped them with the hair of her head? Or because John mentions only Mary Magdalene as coming to the sepulchre on the morning of the resurrection, does it follow that the other evangelists are not to be believed because they state that other women accompanied her? Nay, John himself, although he gives the name of only one, indirectly confirms the others in their statement that more persons were present than Mary, for he says, chapter 20, verse 2, that Mary, running to meet Peter, exclaimed, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we, using the plural, know not where they have laid him. The Sermon on the Mount Another difference in the story about the Sermon on the Mount seems to trouble some minds wonderfully. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 3 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. On the other hand, Luke says, chapter 6, verse 17, He stood in the plain, or a level place, as the new version has it, and lifted up his eyes and said, Blessed be ye poor, etc. One says he was standing, the other that he was sitting. How is this? Remember, this is the longest discourse Jesus ever delivered, probably not wholly reported either, and if he became tired of standing before his sermon was finished, why should he not sit down? He was human like the rest of us, except without sin. But one says he went up the mountain, another that he stood on a level place. How could that be? Did you never partly ascend a mountain and find a plateau, tableland, or level place on its sides or between its depths, where many people could easily be assembled? Is not that exactly the way it probably happened? Luke agrees with Matthew, see chapter 6, verse 12, that before he commenced his sermon, Jesus went up into the mountain to pray, and then he adds in verse 17 that he came down and stood in a level place, where he lifted up his eyes and said, Blessed are the poor, etc. I do not overlook the fact that tradition still points out just such a level place between two peaks called the Horns of Hattin on the road from Tiberias to Capernaum, as the very spot where the sermon was delivered, but I am suggesting that the combined gospel stories point to exactly the same conclusion. Miracle of the Loaves and Fishes Then came the miracle of the Loaves and Fishes at Bethsaida. This miracle furnishes a striking proof of the harmony and consistency of the gospels, while using language apparently inconsistent. Thus Luke says, chapter 9, verse 14, that the multitude sat down in company of about fifty each, whereas another asserts that they sat down by hundreds. How so? This is another of the much-vaunted inconsistencies of the Bible. How could these two expressions be true? Easily enough. If they sat one hundred in the front row and fifty rows deep, would there be any contradiction in the two statements? Would that not be a literal compliance with the words of Mark, chapter 6, verse 40, viz., and they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties? How many would that be? Fifty times one hundred is five thousand, and therefore John, without saying anything of the manner of their arrangement or the order of their seats, simply says, chapter 6, verse 10, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. 
Each writer uses different words, but all the statements harmonize and blend in one consistent whole. But we are not quite through with this interesting story. One evangelist informs us that the next day, after feeding the five thousand, some of the people of Bethsaida, which, as you know, is northeast of the Sea of Galilee, took shipping and came over to Capernaum on the west side, and when they found Jesus over there, they said, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? John chapter 6, verse 25. Why did they put that particular question to Jesus? Was it mere idle curiosity, or was there some special reason for their surprise and wonder at finding Jesus in Capernaum so early the next morning? Let us see. Elsewhere we learn that in the latter part of the day of the miracle the disciples took the only boat there was at Bethsaida to cross the lake to Capernaum, and Jesus was not with them, for he had gone apart into a mountain to pray. As there was no other boat at Bethsaida, the people who thus addressed Jesus naturally wondered how he could have crossed that night so as to be in Capernaum early the next morning. Turn to Matthew and you will find how it happened. Chapter 14, verse 25. He tells us that in the fourth watch of the night Jesus joined his disciples on their way over to Capernaum, walking upon the sea. And this was in the very darkest hours of the night. The people in Bethsaida had no knowledge of Jesus' departure, and supposing he was still in the mountain on the east side behind Bethsaida, where his disciples had left him the night before, they might well be surprised at finding him so early the next morning over in Capernaum on the west side of the sea, and therefore naturally exclaimed when they met him, Why, Master, how in the world did you get over here this morning? But still another interesting question arises. If the disciples had taken the only boat there was at Bethsaida on the evening of the miracle, how could the other people of Bethsaida, who addressed Jesus thus, have themselves gotten over to Capernaum the next morning? Did some boats arrive at Bethsaida during the night? That was an awful night on Galilee. And in Matthew chapter 14 verse 24, we learn that the disciples on their way from Bethsaida to Capernaum had a fearful time and their ship was tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. If the wind was contrary to the disciples, going westward from Bethsaida to Capernaum, it must have been favourable to other persons bound eastward to Bethsaida from the west side of the lake, and so it might have carried boats towards Bethsaida that night. But neither Matthew, Mark, nor Luke mentions any such circumstance. Turn now to John, chapter 6, verse 23, where he says, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias which, like Capernaum, was on the west side of Galilee, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. And so a wind, which to the disciples going southwest from Bethsaida to Capernaum would be contrary, was exactly a wind to carry other ships that night from Tiberias northeastward to Bethsaida. And that is how these citizens of Bethsaida might have gotten over to Capernaum that morning. What adroit forgers these evangelists were! the one to narrate facts which would not easily have happened unless some boats had arrived at Bethsaida that night, but without saying so, the other to have incidentally mentioned such arrival in his account of the transaction. I do not positively say that the people at Bethsaida did cross the lake by boat to Capernaum, for they might have gone by land around the end of the lake, as it is not over ten miles, but I simply say that the facts stated in the several evangelists all harmonize with that view although the story of no one alone brings it all out. The Healing of the Centurion's Servant Luke informs us, chapter 7, verse 3, that when the centurion heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. On the other hand, Matthew as positively declares that the centurion went himself unto Jesus, beseeching him, chapter 8, verse 5. Some critics seem to think these two statements inconsistent. But are the two accounts so utterly irreconcilable? Let us see. 
would it be impossible or unnatural that the centurion should first send the elders to jesus as luke says he did and after they had been gone for some time becoming anxious and impatient at their long delay that he should set out himself to plead in person with jesus for this servant was very dear unto him and so meet jesus and the elders on their way back as matthew intimates he did if this were all the discrepancy between the two accounts it might be readily explained but unfortunately it is not for luke again in verse six repeats the assertion that as jesus was returning with the elders the centurion sent friends to him saying lord trouble not thyself etc but the greek word used in this part of the story and translated sent is epemsen not the same word translated sent in verse three where he speaks of sending the elders that word apestilen from apostelo which always means to dispatch to send off etc but this word epemsen used in the sixth verse means not only to send but also according to approved lexicons to lead to escort conduct proceed with and is used in that sense by homer and other writers if luke intended to convey the same meaning in the second place as in the first why did he use a different word therefore the centurion might himself be conducting or proceeding with his friends and so all meet jesus returning with the elders indeed the language that luke puts into the centurion's mouth naturally imports that the latter was personally present with his friends as they met jesus for the centurion said lord trouble not thyself for i am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof wherefore neither thought i myself worthy to come to thee but say the word only and my servant shall be healed was not the man who spake these words standing face to face with jesus if so it is true that the centurion first sent elders to jesus as luke narrates in verse three it is true that in the second place he did go himself as matthew records it is true that when he went himself he was accompanied by his friends as luke asserts in verse six and there is now no contradiction but all is in perfect harmony the case of bartimaeus as to the healing of bartimaeus at jericho a formidable discrepancy is thought to exist viz matthew chapter twenty verse twenty nine and thirty and mark chapter ten verse forty six speak of it as happening when jesus was departing from jericho while luke chapter eighteen verse thirty five says it came to pass as he was come nigh unto jericho etc this is sometimes thought to be a serious contradiction some think it a very serious one and their hearts quake with misgivings but look again is this a variation except in a completely unimportant particular a mere fringe of the garment let us look at the miracle in the perspective the important fact the most important fact is did it take place at all or was it a mere invention three witnesses declare it did and no one says it did not all agree it was near jericho all agree it was in the presence of a great multitude all agree that the party healed be they one or two sat by the wayside begging all agree in all the other essential particulars of the miracle they differ in only one unimportant point is the main story then true or false did they all three fabricate the tale for you must convict all three of false testimony to prove it untrue did they copy from each other why then did they not copy alike if three witnesses should testify in court to seeing a crime committed and all three gave the same particulars but two said it occurred in the forenoon and one in the afternoon or one said it was on the north side of the road and another on the south would that invalidate their testimony the bible stories like other narratives must be looked at in the perspective if three witnesses in court agree in four particulars of the same transaction and differ in only one where is the preponderance of the testimony that they were all lying or that one of them is mistaken 
this and other differences in the scriptures may militate against the doctrine of exact verbal inspiration but that is not what we are endeavouring to maintain but simply that the variance does not from a legal standpoint overthrow the positive testimony of the three evangelists that the event actually occurred the two thieves the different stories about the two thieves upon the cross furnish a very gratifying theme for criticism to some enemies of the bible you remember that two evangelists say that they who were crucified with jesus reviled him and cast the same in his teeth but luke tells us that one of them said this man hath done nothing amiss are those two accounts both false would it be unnatural or impossible that both malefactors should have at first joined with the insulting crowd and afterwards that the more tender-hearted of the two should have repented in the agony of approaching death and exclaimed lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom nay in our modern criminal courts how often does it happen that when two are arrested for some offence they both deny it for a while to the officer and yet afterwards one turns state's evidence and convicts both of the offence how many a mother has called her two young children to her side for some disobedience of her command, and although both at first deny it, yet moved by her tender appeals, the more conscientious of the two at last breaks down, and choking with sobs confesses the whole transaction. Do not, therefore, I pray you, give up your Bible, your religion, or your God, because of such flippant talk about the contradictions of the Gospels, come from whom it may." Thus, by undesigned coincidences, by indirect confirmations, by unexpected corroborations, by natural and for the most part easily reconcilable differences scattered throughout these four histories, may we be abundantly satisfied of the truth and harmony of the Gospels. The variations in these stories do not detract from their reliability, but rather the opposite. What would be our opinion of a man who denied the real existence of another merely because four photographs of him, one a front and one a back view, and two others of opposite sides of his face, did not present the same features? Is it not from the four views combined that you get the fullest and truest idea of the person portrayed? So from the combined pictures of the acts and doings of our Lord in the four Gospels, or rather this fourfold Gospel, do we best comprehend the fullness of his life and power? what wonder then that rousseau felt compelled to declare that if the gospels were an invention the inventor was greater than the hero or a still later than rousseau to assert that the forger of such a jesus must have been superior to jesus himself conclusion this would be our conclusion if we were judging of the gospel story simply by the light of intellect and of reason and were endowed with no nobler and higher faculties but there is a spiritual power within us which makes the same answer a faith which is higher than mere belief as spirit is higher than mind or mind higher than body there is a part of us transcending the intellect a part more deep more boundless and more sublime than that of the mind a part which no fowl knoweth and which the vulture's eye hath not seen a part by which we may claim kinship with the cherubim and seraphim that part which enables us to see with the eye of a spiritual vision and discern with a celestial insight that faith which is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen which enables young men to mount up with wings as eagles to run and not be weary to walk and not faint a faith which inspired the celebrated congregational divine dr palmer to pen that devout hymn so full of trust love and confidence my faith looks up to thee thou lamb of calvary 
let not therefore the criticism of the sceptic the jeers of the scoffer or the doubts of the agnostic disturb our calm confidence in the actual existence the splendid example and the divine attributes of him whose earthly life miracles and teachings are thus described in the four gospels nay let us rather with that abiding conviction derived from reason faith and love combined confidently proclaim with the inspired apostle i know in whom i have believed or with that perfect and upright man of old i know i know that my redeemer liveth yes yes jesus lives i know full well nought from him my heart can sever life nor death nor powers of hell shall keep me from his side for ever amen End of the Four Gospels from a Lawyer's Standpoint by Edmund Bennett